kids, this is your time to go to your classes if you would like to. So room uh, 202 for Cedar Ridge kids on this side and preschool on this side. Is there someone to meet them? See Brian headed that way. Oh, over there. Kate's over there for the preschoolers. And Mr. Brian's over there for you bigger ones. All right. So hello again. You probably hoped that was the message, right? No, afraid <laughs> not. We've had some unseasonably warm weather this week, haven't we? I hope that you've been able to get out and to enjoy that. Um, but it's also felt, at least to me, a little bit crazy. I mean, just two weeks ago, we were having temperatures that were dipping down to single digits. Uh, we're having um, frozen pipes and uh, canceled flights and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm sure there's lots more winter to come. In fact, technically speaking, there's another 71 days of winter. So that's, that sounds a lot. And as we were saying earlier, in winter, life can be very hard, not just for wildlife, but people too. For a start, the holidays are over. Um, some of us might be all too happy to kind of pack everything away and return to a more normal uh, kind of a routine. Um, but for others of us, it can feel a bit of a letdown. Gifts under the tree can soon turn into concern about credit card bills. Um, consumer counseling agencies uh, see a 25% increase in the number of people seeking help in January and February. And that's, of course, no surprise whatsoever. Debt is a huge and growing problem here in the US, as it is in many other countries too. And money is not the only thing that worries us. Uh, we worry about our health. Uh, people actually don't put on all that much weight over the holidays. I was interested to read. The average is only about one pound. But many of us become more conscious of, of our eating habits and start diets in January or resolve to go to the gym or drink more water or, or whatever it is that we decide to do. That can feel like a bit of a grind and typically it leads to disappointment when we don't manage to keep going. At this time of year, our visitors leave. Again, mixed feeling. Some, you know, there might be some sadness, but uh, uh, some relief maybe, <laughs> but also a, a lot of sadness. We, we tend to, you know, be saying goodbye to people. Work resumes. I'll not comment on that. Um, and the holiday lights get switched off, right? I, that one always gets me when our neighborhood suddenly, suddenly goes dark. Uh, you know, all those pretty lights are gone. And uh, we know what we've got to look forward to. You know, there's all that de-icing the car and uh, digging out from the snow and um, long, dark nights. It's depressing, literally for some of us, myself included, um, with less sunlight and less opportunity to get outside, tendencies towards depression are heightened at this time of year. And isolation and loneliness also can be very real problems, particularly with COVID and all the winter colds and flu. Many of us don't feel comfortable gathering um, too much inside with others. And getting together in the winter requires a lot more effort, right? You've got to put on extra layers. You've got to go defrost the car and worry about ice on the roads and all that kind of stuff. And so many of us don't bother, actually. Um, instead, we withdraw. But that can mean we end up isolated. And isolation is a huge problem here in the US. Here's a statistic I found pretty staggering. As a nation, we're so isolated that 31% of people have no one outside of their immediate family to call if there's an emergency, 31%. And for people that are struggling financially, that increases to 47%, no one to call. Loneliness too is a huge problem. 
It's estimated that 20% of Americans are chronically lonely. Um, and that impacts married people almost as much as single. Loneliness and uh, being alone are not the same thing. And it affects all ages. Millennials are actually the uh, age bracket that reports the highest level of uh, loneliness. Loneliness has well-documented um, psychological and mental Im impacts as well as, as physical ones, um, including high blood pressure, heart disease, obesity, a weakened immune system, cognitive decline, anxiety, and of course, depression. The physical toll of chronic loneliness has been estimated to have the same negative impact on life expectancy as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Huge, huge. Winter can be hard. It's a season that cries out for kindness and cooperation. And those two things tend to go together. Charles Darwin, the great evolutionary scientist, is of course known for the idea of the survival of the fittest, but he never intended that to mean the survival of the most ruthless. In fact, on the contrary, he argued that love, sympathy, and caring evolved as survival mechanisms. Kindness, he claims, kickstarts cooperation, and cooperation is essential to survival. In fact, we are chemically wired to be kind. Deciding to be generous or to cooperate with others activates an area of the brain called the striatum, which delivers a sense of satisfaction. And although we sometimes kind of cynically say no good deed goes unpunished, and, and sometimes you, know, you try and do something good and it backfires, but generally kindness benefits both the person um, doing the kind thing and the one being the recipient of that. Scientific studies have uh, proved that showing kindness reduces stress and social anxiety, makes you more confident and respected by your work colleagues, and is the most important predictor of satisfaction and stability in a marriage. Kindness makes you prettier. Well, kind of. Next one. Um, in, yeah, that's maybe overselling it a little bit, but um, tests show that people will be ranked as more attractive if they are known to also be generous. So people will think you're prettier. You might be prettier, but people will think you are. Um, it also makes you happier. Uh, loads of tests on this, that spending money on other people makes you way happier than spending money on yourself. Uh, in 27 different experiments, helping others was consistently shown, shown to make people happier than helping themselves or doing nothing. Um, counterintuitively, people who volunteer their time feel that they have more time for themselves. Actually, they have less, but they, they value that time, and so they feel like they have more. And then finally, expressing gratitude increases the sense of well-being, both of the person who's expressing it and the recipient. And in fact, the person saying thank you or expressing gratitude consistently underestimates how much of a positive impact that is on the other person. Kindness is valued, it's appreciated, and it spreads across social networks. People who experience kindness are much, much more likely to then go on and express it themselves. So given all that, you'd think we would go around being kind all the time, right? But we don't. Um, in many ways, kindness doesn't come naturally. Why might that be? Well, here are just a few uh, reasons. This is not a comprehensive list at all. It's just a few ideas. But first off, I think we kind of think we're the center of the universe, or at least we should be. Now, obviously, we don't literally think that. We're not consciously thinking, I am the center of the universe. Although if you are thinking about that, you should probably talk to somebody. Um, but, but still, in the back of our mind, there's a kind of a feeling of, I'm a little bit more important than other people, or at least certain other people. And linked to this is the thought that we are separate 
from everyone else, that we're unique individuals who are not intrinsically part of the bigger whole, the bigger unity. And we actually talked about this um, last week, how this is the exact opposite of the incarnation. In Jesus, God was one with humanity in all of our brokenness. But we're so quick to draw brown boundaries to say, you know, this is us and that's them. And perhaps at least sometimes we live in fear that there's not enough to go around. There's not enough love or attention or resources. And so because we matter more, because we center ourselves more than other people, um, we put ourselves first and we behave selfishly and we are unkind. In addition, um, kindness often requires intentionality and effort. Uh, it's hard to be kind when we're busy and distracted and tired. Uh, and, and yeah, we don't feel up to it. And it can be costly in, times of, in terms of time and energy and resources. We said that people who experience kindness are much more likely to express kindness. Um, but they might not show that kindness to us, right? So we might go out there and, and be really kind and that kindness might not be returned to us. Um, we might look foolish and weak. Uh, we might think we look like that. We might be taken advantage of. That's a very real concern. So these are just a few uh, reasons why we might not be so kind. And ironically, I think the Christian religion can feed into some of these reasons, particularly, I think, the first three. We see the Christian faith often presented as a very individual endeavor. You know, it's about my personal relationship with Jesus. It's about me being saved. The world can be destroyed. Millions of people can be damned. We just need to make sure that we're okay. I I'm okay and the people closest to me. But this is not at all what we see in Jesus. When we read the Gospels, we see in story after story, Jesus being incredibly inclusive and selfless and kind. And although I am sure that being kind came a lot more naturally to Jesus than it does to us, I do believe that he had to work at it too. Jesus had to choose to be kind because he was human, just like us. He got tired and distracted and frustrated, just as we do. He experienced scarcity much more than we do. And I'm sure there were times that he was worried that there wasn't enough to go around. And yet time and again, when we read the Gospels, we are struck, or at least I am struck, by Jesus's gentle, understated kindness. So we're going to take a look at some Jesus stories now and explore that in more detail. We're going to look at um, four of them in pretty quick succession. They're all very well-known stories. I'm sure you'll know them. Um, and they really are just illustrative because there are so many stories that we could read about the incredible kindness of Jesus. And Andrew's going to read them for us. So let's listen to the first one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned 
into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is a great story, one we're probably uh, very familiar with. We're not going to go through all the details of this story, but there are just a few points I'd like to draw your attention to related to kindness. And first is that this miracle seems to have been something of an imposition. Jesus wasn't ready. Turning water into wine wasn't on his timetable. Uh, this is notable because sometimes we had, kind of have this idea that Jesus had a master plan um, that he was working to. He knew everything that was coming and had planned everything out. But here, Jesus seems to have been caught off guard to some extent. He wasn't ready. He says his, how, his hour hadn't yet come. And this is not an isolated example. There are a number of other stories where Jesus seems to have not been ready, to have not been looking to do a miracle or to engage in a situation. And initially either to ignore the person who's asking um, or to be resistant to what is asked of him. This miracle of turning water into wine wasn't Jesus's initiative initially, but it seems to have been uh, almost an unwelcome imposition. And yet, of course, Jesus responds. Impositions are something that I struggle with in being kind, if I'm honest. I'm fine with being kind on my timetable, my initiative, when the timing works for me. But there's nothing worse than someone demanding kindness when it's not convenient. When I'm tired or, you know, I just don't want to do it, I'm, I'm busy. I struggle with it because sometimes I think I am the center of the universe. No, I don't, I don't really think that. But I do think, you know, I'm maybe a little bit closer to the center. You know, I don't think people should just be able to come and, you know, make demands, especially if I'm tired, busy and need to do other things. Now, obviously, I'm not saying um, that we shouldn't have any boundaries. We do uh, need boundaries. Um, but sometimes we use that as an excuse not to be kind. And, and that's that's not right. Jesus had every right to think he was the center of the universe. Right. Scripture tells us that all creation was made through him and for him. And yet he responds. The second thing about the story is that this miracle, this act of kindness was asked of him, wasn't actually necessary, right? This is not a life and death situation. They wanted wine for a party. And I know that this was culturally important and his family would have been embarrassed, but I'm sure there were so many times that this happened, so many families who ran out of wine. These were relatively poor people. It can't have been that big a deal. And Jesus could have pointed out that, you know, it's not that big a deal. He's the Messiah. He's got world-changing things to do. He has limited time to train up his disciples and to, to teach to all who will listen. But instead of pointing that out, pointing out that he's actually very important and too important for things like this, he changes the water into wine to allow the party to continue. And then thirdly, of course, Jesus doesn't take the credit. Well, that's a hard one, right? I mean, if you've gone out of your way and you've done something really nice for people, the least you can do is get a little credit. But Jesus seems content to let the groom receive all the praise. Jesus is so kind in this situation. No wonder the disciples believe in him. Let's look at another well-known well story, Jesus blessing the children. One day, some parents 
brought their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never inherit it, will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed in his hands on their heads and blessed them. There are some other things that we can note here about Jesus's kindness. First, of course, in this culture, men didn't hang out with other people's kids. Um, they barely hung out with their own kids. Kids were nobody. Jesus is an important person with important work to do. By this time in his ministry, he's having serious debates with religious leaders. He's uh, healing people. He's feeding thousands of people at a time. Uh, he's teaching great crowds. Holy men, of course, uh, did have a tradition of blessing children. That was an, an ancient thing that they've always done. But Jesus doesn't have time for that now. He's beyond it. So the disciples thought. Furthermore, the picture that the gospel writer paints here is not one of an orderly line of parents, you know, with babes in arms. Jesus doesn't say, let the parents come to me, but let the children come to me. You get the impression that the kids are themselves just running up to Jesus. How demeaning. You know, Jesus has just been transfigured on a mountaintop. He's just been conversing with Elijah and Moses. And the kids think, what, they can just jump on his knee and, and play patty cake or something? I, I, you know, kind of crazy. But Jesus doesn't in any way see this as demeaning. The New International Version says Jesus was angry, but this is a, a very strong word in the Greek. Jesus was indignant and he was grieved with his disciples. What they were doing was totally wrong. Jesus was kind to nobodies, to children, to women, to foreigners, to sinners, to the sick and disabled, to people who were mentally and emotionally troubled, because they weren't nobodies to Jesus. All people mattered to him. All people deserved love and dignity and kindness. And note, there's no condescension here. Jesus doesn't say, let the children come to me because they're so cute, aren't they? They're so adorable. They make me laugh. No, Jesus takes kids seriously. He took their faith seriously. He held them up as role models and said, these are the kind of people who enter the kingdom of God. These young people, they're not beneath you. They're ahead of you. Now, what the disciples were doing here in keeping the kids out of Jesus's way was probably done with good intentions. They were probably trying to protect Jesus, trying to lessen the demands on him, maybe create some space for rest for him, but also trying to protect his, his reputation, his status, his honor. But Jesus doesn't seem to have any interest in his reputation. He was very willing to act counterculturally to show love and kindness to everyone, even people that were considered nobodies, with no sense of condescension. Let's read another story, this time about a healing. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, 
Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. There are so many beautiful healing stories in the Gospels. There's so many I love. It's hard to choose. Um, they're written in a very succinct way um, with not a lot of detail. There's no backstories. There's not much emotion put in there. It can be easy to kind of rush over them and miss the pathos and the tenderness of the situation. Here, of course, is a man with a skin disease of some kind. Um, it wasn't necessarily Hansen's disease, which is what we call leprosy today, uh, that term kind of referred to any infectious disease that showed symptoms in the skin. It could have been leprosy, but it, it's not necessarily. It could have you know, been some other kind of skin disease. And Luke says that the man was covered in it, that whatever it was, this was a severe case. And we know that people at that time who had such diseases were kept separate from society. That's not because people were um, you know, trying to be cruel, but medicine was very rudimentary. The only way to protect everyone else was to isolate the infected person. So this man had no right to approach Jesus. He was endangering him. He was putting Jesus at risk because Jesus was human, fully human, capable of getting sick and infected human, just like us. And Jesus was constrained by the knowledge of the scientific knowledge of his day. He wasn't all knowing in that regard. Uh, he, could, he couldn't be sure that coming into close contact with this man wouldn't infect him too. I am sure he felt some of the fear of that day and age when this man approached him and fell at his feet. We also know that Jesus did not need to touch him to heal him. On another occasion, 10 people with leprosy called out to Jesus from a distance, and he told them to go to the priest, and uh, on the way, they were healed. There is no need for close contact. But in this story, Jesus reaches out and touches the man. I wonder how long it had been since that man had been touched. I wonder if he despaired of ever being touched by another human again. To heal the man would have been an act of kindness. But Jesus does so much more than that. He's kinder than necessary. He breaks through social barriers. He overcomes his own fears. He puts himself at physical risk in order to connect with that person, to treat him as a fellow human, a brother. He doesn't just fix the problem, he connects with the person. So let's read our final story for today. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, come my leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. 
I think this is a fascinating story. It's in all four of the Gospels with slight variations. The high priest Caiaphas, who plotted Jesus' execution, has sent his servant, apparently as, as his emissary, with the chief priests and temple guards when they go to arrest Jesus. The servant, who uh, in John's Gospel is called Malchus, is Jesus' enemy. He's coming with armed guards to ensure that Jesus is captured. In an attempt to protect Jesus, Peter strikes the ear of the servant and, and cuts it off. Some would argue, well, this is self-defense. It's, it's a life and death situation. And Peter was giving Malchus no less than he deserved. We can imagine the scene, right? It's, it's dark, it's chaotic. Uh, Malchus is probably yelling and stumbling around. Uh, Peter perhaps suddenly realizing what he's done. Almost certainly, Malchus did not look to Jesus for healing. He, or at least his boss, considers Jesus the enemy, a blasphemer worthy of death. Meanwhile, Jesus, just moments earlier, was in fearful agony, anticipating what was ahead of him. It's hard to imagine a lot of sentiment in this scenario. Unlike so many other healing stories in the Gospels, there's probably not a lot of tenderness in this scene. There's no real pathos. Uh, Malchus is not pleading with Jesus for help. Um, and it's hard to imagine Jesus being naturally overwhelmed uh, with a sense of warmth towards Malchus. And yet Jesus chooses to carry out an act of outrageous kindness. He heals Malchus, even without him asking for it. Jesus does what is right, even in his darkest hour. He is kind to his enemy, right when his enemy is collaborating in his murder. We don't know what happened to Malchus. After this incident, we might think, oh, well, this would be a life changing event, um, you know, and he'll become a follower of Jesus. But there's no evidence of that. Um, surprisingly, there are no ancient legends, as there are about so many other people in scripture, about him becoming a believer. That's unusual. Jesus' kindness was not necessarily effective in this way. Jesus was still arrested. He was still led off to die. And as far as we know, Malchus continued to collaborate in the proceedings. But Jesus righted a wrong, even for his enemy who didn't deserve it. There's an element of justice here. Jesus is acting to, it, with regard to the, the highest level of justice that doesn't permit violence, the very highest standard, while his enemies are perpetrating unjust violence against him. We're going to look at this idea of kindness as justice next week. But for now, as we wrap up and the band want to come up, let's consider what we can take away from all of this. First, we are called to be kind, to be kind like Jesus, to be tender hearted to those in need without being condescending or sentimental. And second, to be kind to everyone, not to see ourselves as closer to the center of the universe than anyone else, but to see everyone as precious and deserving of love and respect, even our enemies. And third, we're called not just to be kind, but to be kinder than necessary. Not just to try and fix someone's problem, but to connect with them, to see them, to hear them, to, to, to be there for them. To care more about their well-being, their joy, their honor than about taking credit for ourselves. To be kind in small mundane ways in life. And then fourth, we're called to be kinder than necessary to everyone even when we don't feel like it, even when we're tired and busy or we're not feeling ready or we're feeling imposed upon. And lastly, we do this 
because we are God's beloved children. Going back to the verse that we started with this morning in Colossians 3, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We are dearly loved. We might not be the center of the universe, but the creator of the universe knows us, loves us, delights in us. We are God's beloved children. And because we are so seen, so known, so loved, we don't need to worry about making sure that our needs get taken off, taken care of. We don't need to worry so much about there being enough. With God, there is enough. With God, we are enough. We can learn to live lightly and freely. We can afford to live selflessly, generously, kindly. We're going to take communion now as we do every week. We're going to take bread and wine or as it is here, uh, gluten-free crackers and uh, some juice as tokens of the kindness that God demonstrated in Jesus. Jesus who lifted up the downtrodden, who healed and restored outcasts, who did good to those who considered him their enemy. Jesus who lived a life of kindness all the way to the cross and beyond. On the night before he died, Jesus took bread and he broke it, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and blessed it and gave it to them and said, take and drink, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. As we eat and drink, let us remember Jesus, not remember in a, a passive way, but committing ourselves to the way of Jesus, to the way of forgiveness and self-sacrificial love. So when you're ready, please come and take communion. You can take it at the tables at the front or the table in the middle. Uh, you can feel free to stand there and take it with others or take it back to your chair, whichever feels uh, more comfortable for you. Um, also, at this time, you can respond in other ways. You can light a candle at the back as a form of prayer. Um, you can pray with someone at the back, or you, you can uh, light a, a candle at our Ukraine uh, station there. You can write out a prayer and put it in the frames under Journey and Go, Grow, and a team of us will uh, pray for you during the week. You might like to make a financial gift, put it in the towers at the back, or just uh, sit and listen to the music or, or join in with that. Um, however you want to respond, uh, feel free to do so. But first, let's just uh, say a prayer, and then we'll, we'll respond. Dear loving and heavenly Father, a kind, kind Father, we thank you that we are loved by you, deeply and truly loved by you. We thank you that your kindness extends to every single person in this room and to the whole of your creation. You are a kind God. Please help us to trust in your love. May that strengthen us and empower us to take your love and your kindness out into the world. Amen.